Good morning, afternoon, evening, whenever you're listening to this. I am back in my dad, Pastor Joel Nason's office, uh, and my little 11-week-old daughter is in the room with us, so if you hear anything that sounds like a baby, it is a baby. Uh, Hopefully she'll fall asleep during this. But um, welcome back to my dad, and we are going to get into some of the questions that I had or that you guys submitted, and we're going to also have a look ahead to what's coming. So welcome back, Dad. Good to be here. So the first thing I would like to start with is why are the books of Kings and Chronicles the same practically, and but the names are different, and what what is the purpose of them? This has always been a question that people have wondered about, particularly those who do do a lot of Bible reading, and they may even be reading through uh, a scheduled Bible reading in a year. Um, the common, the most common answer to this is. Uh, the key is to understand the differences between the books in terms of who they're being written to and when they're being written. Uh, because there are a great deal of similarities between the Kings and the Chronicles. And in fact, in the Hebrew Bible, the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles are actually uh, that's one book. Uh, it's, all, it's just Samuel, the book of Samuel, the book of Kings, and the book of Chronicles. So there are a lot of similarities, and a lot of people wonder why. Why do we have these two accounts of Israel's history in our Bibles? And at first glance, it seems like there's a lot of information that's repeated, and, and it is. I mean, there is a, there's a lot of repetitiousness between the two books, but roughly 50% of the uh Material that's in the book of Chronicles is also covered in uh, other books in the Old Testament, but 50% is not. So why do we have both Kings and Chronicles in the Bible? And the answer lies in the differences between the two histories of Israel. What I mean by that is, if you have studied the timeline at all in Israeli history, you know that uh, there is a difference that uh, there is a separating point that made the difference between Israel and Judah. If you're familiar with it, the t- northern ten tribes of Israel uh, went uh, compromised and w- went into paganism um, much quicker than the southern two tribes of Judah and, and Benjamin. And so what happened is there's roughly 200 years 150 years of difference between um, uh, kings and between chronicles. There's a, an event that happened in between um, Samuel, uh, kings and chronicles that uh, really defines the whole nation of Israel, and that is the exile. If you'll remember from your Bible reading that God constantly uh, warned the people of Israel to not adopt the gods of the pagan nations that they were around. Uh, and they failed to do so. They continued on in their paganism, and God kept sending prophet after prophet in the books of Kings and Samuel and Kings to warn the people about that. that this is going to happen, and God's blessing would be removed from them, and that if they continued to follow these idols, that he would remove them from the land like he did the people that they... Uh, 
they dispossessed there. So, uh, the books of Chronicles were written uh, after their punishment, and that is the exile, where thousands upon thousands and thousands of Israelites were taken captive by the Assyrian nation, and they were removed from the land. So, just to put it in perspective, God gives warnings in the books of Samuel and Kings. He said, if you don't come after me, uh, follow after me exclusively, I will exile you. They failed to obey. God exiled them. So in the book of Chronicles, it's looking back at what happened. And in the books of Samuel and Kings, it's looking forward. So uh, the Samuel and Kings uh, recordings needed to show the people that the nation's troubles were the direct result of sinful disobedience rather than God just abandoning his people. And Chronicles was written after people started coming back from this exile uh, in order to encourage them, to encourage them to, to uh, uh, turn back to Yahweh and to worship him as the one true God. So, uh, I'll just list three major distinctives, and, and hopefully that'll give you a little bit of understanding. Uh, the books of Chronicles uh, are a little are, are have a significant difference between Kings too. Chronicles focuses heavily on David and Solomon, actually to the tune of about 29 more chapters that focuses on them. Uh, when discussing those rulers, the spotlight tends to be, remember Chronicles, post-exile, the spotlight tends to be on their triumphs rather than all of their failures and their adultery and idolatry. The Chronicles doesn't whitewash history. It doesn't just gloss over it. Uh, actually, if you read it closely, Chronicles deals more favorably with those Israelite kings of the northern ten tribes that uh, would have been dealt with more harshly in Kings and Samuel. Uh, for instance, wicked King Manasseh, if you remember reading about him, he was a terrible, terrible king in 1 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 33. But what you have is only Chronicles mentions the fact that Manasseh ended up repenting, turning from his evil and becoming uh, and coming back to God. Another difference is that uh, Chronicles focuses primarily on the kings of Judah uh, rather than the house of, uh, uh, rather than the uh, kings of Israel, the house of David is magnified. Uh, when the kings of Israel are mentioned, it's usually only because of some connection that they had uh, with the house of David there in Judah in the south. It doesn't ignore the northern ten tribes, uh, but the chronicler who wrote it sees Judah as the central place of God's work. So it's a little bit different. Not only that, Samuel and Kings acknowledges that God dealt with the wickedness of Israel's king by, by punishing their, their descendants. But Chronicles focuses on God's dealing with obedient and disobedient kings in their lifetime. So, the overall purpose of Chronicles was not to beat up on a dejected Israel that had already been in exile, but to lift them up, to encourage them, to point them back to God, to tell them that He is to be the object of their love and their lo uh, loyalty and allegiance. That's why, by the way, it's very important that in the Hebrew Bible, at the very end of the Hebrew Bible is where Chronicles is, not Malachi, 
not any of the prophets, but rather chronicles as at the very end of the Hebrew Bible in order to leave a note of encouragement that God is still working, even though there's been failure, even though you've been exiled, even though you've been punished, uh, God is still working and he's going to bring about his purposes through them. So the original readers would have been probably a little bit more tuned in to the message, knowing what resulted from their pagan idolatry and how God crushed them, but yet brought them through that and has a great plan still for his people, the house of David in Judah. Wow, I didn't know all of that. Um, The next question is, we just recently read the book of Joel in the Old Testament, and I know I was very confused, and I was like, what's up with all the locusts? So could you talk about what is Joel about? Joel is one of those tough prophets in the minor prophets. Again, minor not because it doesn't have as much importance, but minor meaning that it's a smaller, uh, smaller book than books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on. But Joel has been one of those that's been difficult. Scholars have have discussed quite a bit over the centuries exactly when Joel prophesied. Um, One of the reasons it's tough is because most of the prophets will indicate a king in which they ministered when they were prophesying. But you don't have any mention of that in the book of Joel. Um, There are hints that he must have lived somewhere around Jerusalem, if not in Jerusalem itself. Uh, because of things that he speaks about regarding the city itself. Most uh, Bible scholars come to the understanding that he probably prophesied about 830 B.C. to 800 B.C. Um, and uh, that uh, he, his prophecy was really sparked um, by a devastating... Uh, this is not an uncommon thing in the Middle East. matter of fact, it still goes on today. Uh, They had one recently, a devastating horde of locusts, Uh, vast hordes of locusts that when they swarm almost blots the the light out of the sky. There's so many of them. And apparently in Joel's day, there had been a locust plague that destroyed everything in sight. Uh, The grain, the vineyards, the gardens, the trees, everything that was green. And Joel is describing this locust plague, and he and and sometimes people people trip over what's a canker worm, what's all these kinds of things. What those are are successive stages in the development of the locusts. And what happens is as they come in and they feed and then they multiply, and you have these that will. It's like a, a, in New England we have what's called army worms, and these army worms are in the tree, and they will literally denude a tree of all its leaves before it turns into something else and keeps on going. Uh, and that's what's going on with this locust horde in 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 Israel itself. And what Joel is doing is basically doing a giant show and tell. He's saying, you're familiar with this locust plague. You've seen the devastation, but I want you to understand that there is a human army that's marching on Israel, and this human army is going to bring judgment. By the way, within 100 years of Joel's prophecy, the Assyrian nation comes in like a plague of locusts and literally strips the land of everything. And so Joel is prophesying this great event in chapter 1, huge invasion of this army and yet in chapter 2 he goes on to talk about an equally great event and that is that one day there's going to be an outpouring of God's spirit 
where he will begin to change hearts. And we know that that's the case because in Joel chapter 1 verse 4, which is a key verse, uh, what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten, the great locusts have left young locusts, what they have left, the young locusts have eaten, and what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. In other words, it's just punishment upon punishment. But in Joel chapter 2, it's a little bit different. He says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. And then chapter 2, verse 28, afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. So it's kind of like going through a tunnel. That's often the way it is with with prophets in the Old Testament. There'll be times of great darkness where if you're riding on your car in Pennsylvania and you go into this dark tunnel and it's dark and gloomy and then all of a sudden, bang, you, you come right out into the broad daylight and you're, you're, there, there, there's, you can see finally and it's not so dark. And that's what Joel's doing. He's taking people through the gloom of God's judgment. Then he's saying, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. There is light in that God is going to change things. So that terrible plague of locusts then becomes an object lesson. I mean, severe famine is going to result because of their sin. And he keeps bringing them back to that. This is because of your disobedience. And the overriding theme of the whole book is the day of the Lord, a day of God's wrath, a day of God's judgment, uh, when he's going to show his, his, uh, his, his power and his holiness. Uh, it's going to be a terrifying day. And so that's exactly what Joel is doing, is prophesying regarding uh, the judgment that's about to fall. Uh, and I just want to give a moment of practical application to that. Because as I was thinking <coughs> excuse me, about this, uh, there is a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. It's not just a New Testament thing. It is an Old Testament. It's an entire revelation of God. And that is that without repentance, judgment will be harsh. It's going to be thorough. It's going to be certain. Our, our trust cannot be in the fact that we even... Uh, have a Christian nation that we might live in or we might have been raised in a Christian home, we need to remember that God is going to hold us all accountable one day as we stand before Him regarding what we've done with His great grace in Jesus Christ. God at sometimes will use nature, He'll use loss, He'll use sorrow, He'll use other things that we all go through in life in order to draw us closer to Him. But in his mercy and grace, he's provided a way through Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins and exchanging our sin for his perfect righteousness. Obedience is what God calls on us to do. Unless you have another question that you'd like to propose. Um, I was just wondering, we're getting into the book of Amos mm. and all of those Old Testament minor prophets are a little bit confusing so yeah. i was wondering if looking sure. ahead amos and if we have time hosea let's look at amos for a minute amos of course is a he's one of those blue collar prophets i like to call him blue collar in that <clears throat> amos didn't go to seminary amos didn't go to bible college <laughs> amos was not a guy who was um you know the top of his educational field as a matter of fact, the first chapter of the book of Amos tells us that he was just a shepherd. He was a shepherd from Tekoa. He was a shepherd that lived in an area where they raised sheep for temple sacrifice. 
And Amos was directly called out by God. He was rough. Uh, he was ready. He was willing. Uh, and sometimes that's what the Lord really needs is not somebody who's self-satisfied with his own education, but somebody who is uh, really dependable by God to be able to get the job done. So Amos, a shepherd from Tekoa. Uh, Amos spends the bulk of his prophecy dealing with the nations that live around Israel uh, because all of those nations there in the Middle East uh, were to one degree or another guilty of some terrible atrocities and God is calling them on the carpet for it and he's doing it through Amos whether it is Damascus whether it is Moab whether it is who whatever the the uh, group that might be the, the people groups that are gathered around Israel, God is reaching out and condemning their sin, their immorality, their vileness, and he's, he's calling them to task on that and, and saying God is going to bring judgment on that. And that's really the bulk of what Amos is all about. It's just judgment that God brings. I mean, you can get into more detail. There's some famous passages in Amos, but if you'll just remember that he was just a servant and a mouthpiece for the living God to bring uh, pronounce judgment on those nations that uh, surrounded Israel and, and, and quite frankly on Israel as well. It's not that he leaves God's people untouched, but that he calls them out. And when it comes to Hosea, great, uh, a great book that is uh, revelatory regarding God's uh, faithful commitment and his love for his people. Uh, if you've read Hosea, it's kind of a sad book where Hosea is called out to uh, marry a woman. Uh, the scholars have debated this. Was she already a woman of ill repute or did she become that after Hosea married her? That's my particular position. That she was not in that immoral uh, lifestyle uh, until after Hosea uh, came to be with her. And then uh, the book reveals this really heart-wrenching episode where Hosea becomes unfaithful as a picture of Israel herself. And in doing so, uh, Hosea is instructed by God to go and to gather Hosea back to himself uh, his wife, excuse me, his wife Gomer back to himself and to continue to pursue her. And again, it's an object lesson. The object lesson is what does God do for his people all the time? He's actively pursuing them. He runs after them, even when they're running the other direction as hard as they possibly can. Even when they prostitute themselves to worship false idols and gods, the arm of God is still stretched out to them so, so that he expends such great effort because of his love for them. And Hosea is basically a great love story that pictures the love of God for his people. Uh, and it does it in terms that we can really kind of understand in, in our life today. And uh, so, you know, a lot of people talk about the Old Testament, about the wrath of God. Well, you know what? If that's what you're focusing on, you haven't read the Bible enough. You haven't read the Old Testament enough. Is God a God of anger and wrath against those that are disobedient? Absolutely. But you cannot neglect the fact that repetitively, nearly every page, God is extending his love 
and his faithfulness to those uh, that will come to him in obedience. Awesome. Um, maybe next time we can go into the book of Micah and Isaiah. Yeah. Um, because those are coming up in the reading as well. Okay. And if you all have questions that you would like added, the next Ask the Pastor, we can get into those as well. But I hope this has been beneficial for you guys. I know it has been for me. Um, again, get your questions in, and we look forward to hearing them. Thanks, Dad. Bye.